Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca. All right, you may have a seat. I want to get right into it this morning, and uh, we're going to be uh, in Genesis 36 today, Genesis 36, uh, probably a text you all have memorized, the genealogy of Esau, okay? It's one of those texts when you look at it, you're like, okay, why is, why is this here? Well, uh, there's a few things. If, if we kind of look at Moses' pattern of uh, writing, we see that uh, in the same way uh, as when Abraham died, he highlighted what was going on with Ishmael. And now we see with the death of Isaac, which we just read about in chapter 35, he's now telling us about Esau as well. And so we see God uh, telling us about these, these people that were the not chosen, uh, the people who uh, still were blessed of God. Uh, as we're going to learn by the time we're all said and done, uh, God said of Esau that, there would be, that he would become a nation, and we'll see that uh, this week. But I have to admit, on Monday, I was a little like, okay, um, where are we gonna, what are we going to do with this? You know? and, and, but, but I think one of the things that we can learn from this text, because uh, every verse matters, we believe that, right? We believe that here at Redemption. Every verse matters. God put this here for a reason. I think as we look at Esau, he's a, he's a really great example of what it means to live in this world, to be of this world, as opposed to Jacob. And, and so we're going to see this contrast. What was Jacob called to do? What did Esau do? We're going to see that throughout this chapter. And, and I want us to be thinking, am I of the world or am I truly following the Lord? Am I a person that's set apart? Uh, has anyone called you weird? You, it, sh- it should be a badge of honor, not just because you're weird, but because you're set apart. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, if you like the flames and people call you weird, that's fine. I mean, we understand that. I see that flames hat. Um, but... I'm joking, obviously. But when it comes to like, when they're looking like, why do you not do what we do? Why do you not follow the pattern that we follow? I don't understand. How can you still have hope in the situation that you're in? Like, that's weird. That's what I'm talking about when I say people ought to call us weird because we're not doing what they do. Esau is going to set the pattern for the world, and then we're going to talk about the opposition of that, the opposite of that in Jacob. And as we do so, I want you to be thinking about, is this said of me? Am I a person set apart from this world? Do I live in contrast to this story of Esau? Or am I walking in the same way as Esau? And so I want us to examine our hearts together this morning. Before we do, let me pray for us that God would help us. And then we're going to get into it. Lord, we are so thankful for your word Every word from you, God, we, we are so thankful, God, that we serve a God who has revealed himself to us. And as we study your word today, God, we pray, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you help us to be a people set apart? Or as we have celebrated joy, we're so thankful that no one 
and nothing can take away our joy. That as Paul says that we are able to rejoice always because of Jesus Christ. He is taking care of our greatest problems that we could ever imagine. Taking care of the problem of the wrath of God against us because of our sin. We're so thankful for that truth this morning. Lord, we thank you that our joy is not temporary, but our joy is eternal in Jesus Christ. And so God, as we now study your word in this difficult passage, God, I pray, would you lead us? Would you help us? Lord, would you convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged? And Lord, above all, would you bring yourself honor and glory as this preacher preaches your word? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we all need a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand, and uh, the ushers will uh, get a copy to you. You probably, uh, not just probably, you need a copy in front of you uh, to know what I'm talking about, okay? You may think I'm speaking in a different language at some points as I read these, this, this chapter, uh, but if you'll see, if you can look down together, you'll see what I'm trying to say, okay? So, so everyone got a Bible. We're going to look at uh, verses, uh, or so we're going to look at the whole chapter of Genesis 36. And as we do, I want to see that in, I want us to see that in, in contrast to the world, God calls his people to do three things. God calls his people to do three things. First, he calls us to faithfully, li- uh, li- we're called to faithfully living, faithful living, sorry, it should be, in another kingdom. We're called to faithful living in another kingdom. What do I mean by that? Well, you're going to see as we get into this. Let's begin by reading the first five verses. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Olhabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Ada bore to Esau. Eliphaz, Basimath, bore Reol, and Olabama bore Jeosh, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. All right, so we're, we're, being, we're, we're being told, hey, these were the kids, these were the wives that Esau had, these were the kids that he had. When we first met Esau as an adult, just to kind of reframe our, our minds as, as to who this Esau guy was, he's the kind of guy who, when he thinks it, when he feels it, he does it, right? There, there's, I, how do I get my desires accomplished, like, right now? He's, he's not the kind of guy to think about it, he just does it. This is the kind of guy he is, and so we, we find that uh, by the time they're adults, he comes home from hunting, um, and he's starving, okay? And, 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 and when we think about starving, starving like you and I starve, not really starving, okay? And, but he's so hungry that, that he wants some stew that his brother has, and, and, and Jacob, the deceiver, ever opportunist, he says, hey, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you some stew, and Esau's response is what? That's ridiculous for a bowl of stew. Is that what he says? No, he's like, sounds like a deal because I'm about to die, right? And he's, he's, all his desires is this, I got to have some stew. And so he sells 
his birthright. This is the kind of guy he was. He was an impetuous person. He never thought about long-term consequences. He never thought about the future. He just thought about right now. It seems like this is included in who he would marry. It is obvious to us that Esau did not marry uh, the woman he did because they were godly women. Esau's choice of who he would marry seems to have only cemented his life in a particular trajectory. To give up his, his birthright was to say, I don't really care about the promises of God. I'm not, I mean, I just need what I need right now. Just like so many people in our world are living right now. I just, I just need what I need right now. And so he forsakes that. He doesn't worry about who he should marry. He's not like, hey, mom and dad, tell me about your story. How did you guys meet? Should I pursue a similar pathway, right? Oh, oh, like someone, grandpa sent someone to that land so that then you would come and marry dad. Okay, that's how it all worked. It was because the Canaanite women were not supposed to be somebody we'd marry. He's, he's, not, he's not thinking about that whatsoever. He's like, I think I'm going to get married. Not just once, twice. I'm going to marry some Canaanite women. What were these gals like? Well, this is what we're told. Genesis 26, 35. They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, you think you have in-law problems? Here we come, right? Christmas time, okay? This was some problems, okay? They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Later on in chapter 27, verse 46, Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Like she said, I hate my life. I hate my life because of these daughters-in-law that are a part of my, that's that's the gals Esau married. Now, for you Bible scholars, you're like, wait a minute. I noticed in Genesis 36 that the names are different of the wives than in Genesis 26. Help me out here, okay? Well, um, I found that a lot of scholars don't know, okay? So that's the, we don't know for sure, but here's, here's a possible solution. Was this guy, his brother, was his name uh, Jacob? Or was it Israel? Uh, the answer is yes. Okay? He had two names. Perhaps this was what's going on. There's different names given to these wives. We're not, we don't know for sure. Some have speculated, well, these were his three favorite wives. We're not told about the other wives that he, like, we don't know. That's the bottom line. And so the Lord didn't think it was important that we'd know that. But there are, there's a contradiction if you're wondering. So, He's not cared about the things of this world, or sorry, about the future and God's promises. He's married women that he ought not to have. Now, Hughes says this about marriage, by the way. A man's choice in marriage showcases his values and is almost always the determining factor in the trajectory of his life. Esau had made his own bed for life. So now in his 40th year, he had formally trashed both his birthright and his heritage. Any single people here? Like it's really important who you marry. Married people, it's really important who you marry, right? Okay? You're like, I made a mistake. Well, too bad. Okay? (laughs) You're married for life. That's how it works, right? You made that commitment for better or for worse, and sometimes there are worse, right? Everybody, I love this stat. It was actually not from a Christian organization. They, they, had, they, had, they went and, and asked these couples 
who are like on the brink of divorce, like they're thinking about, you know, divorce lawyers. Like we're not talking like, oh, I should, but it's like they're, they're on their way to get divorced. And they said, no, let's give it another, another chance. Five years later, they went back to these people and they were all way happier than they'd ever been in their life in regards to their marriage because they stuck it out. All right. So I'm just encouraging you in that. But single people, who you marry matters. I remember I was already in ministry in my early 20s and and, youth pastor. And I remember a a lady saying to me, who you marry will shape your ministry. And that's been so true. I didn't didn't get married until I was 29. I'm so thankful for the woman that God had for me. But I had to wait. I had to wait. She wasn't there at 22 and 23 and 24 and 25. It wasn't until I was 28, I went up to Rocky Mountain House, and there she was, right? Rocky Mountain House, who would have thought, right? But that's what the Lord had. And so I just want to encourage you single people. Sometimes there's this like, I just want to get married. I just want to get, there's hardly, you know, there's not any great options here. I guess I'll just marry this guy. I'll just marry this girl. That's not a good plan. You wait on God's timing in that, and you don't settle. Let's move on. So this is Esau, though. He's married these gals. And then we find out in verse 6 that Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. All right. So um, again, Moses is writing to the people who are sitting in the wilderness, getting ready to go into the promised land. And so they're like, oh, Edom, that's where Edom came from. Like this is after the fact. So this is why he says Esau is Edom. And, and, and it, on the surface, it seems like, man, like, what a benevolent guy, right? They, they get together now after all this time. Now they're living in the same area. And Esau's like, hey, I'm good. I'm going to move. We got too much stuff. I'm just going to move. But where does he move? Somewhere else in the land of Canaan, the promised land? No, he's like, I'm just going to a different land. He, he doesn't care about the fact that his grandpa and his dad had been promised this land. He doesn't care about these things. He doesn't care about the promises of God. He just wants what he wants, and he wants it now. And it's a, it's a lot like Lot, right? With, when, when the same thing with Abraham and, and Lot, when the, there was this problem with the land, what did Lot do? He looked with his eyes like, this is the best land. I'm going to go there. And so Esau, he's like, this is a good place to go. I don't care if it's in the promised land. He's, again, cutting himself off from God's promises, God's, God's best for him over and over and over again. And this has been the pattern of his life from the beginning. He's an example of the worldly person, living only for the things of this world with no concern about the commands of God or the promises of God. On the surface, it would seem that he had anything and everything he ever wanted, and in many ways, he does, right? Like, like he gets the land way before Jacob ever gets the land. Like, like he has many, many blessings and many, many, many belongings. 
He was the one that had a forgiving heart towards his brother. Like it seems like this guy had a great life in many ways. Now we're not told about the conflict that he likely had because of the multiple wives and all that. We're we're given a little insight with Rebecca, like I loathe my life because of this whole thing. But that's not the focus. He has everything. Just like your neighbors, when you start envying them, like, wow, I mean, there's, they always have a smile on their face and everything's great. And, you know, now they're off to Tahiti for another vacation. Like, wow. I mean, they slept in this morning. They didn't, I mean, their lives are going great. Like, you can think that the worldly people are the ones who are blessed. Do, do you ever feel that way? Like, why am I following after God? I'm not getting anything out of this deal, it seems. Like I, it seems like my life is so much harder than their lives. And, and I think Esau is kind of saying, yeah, that, that's the way it is. But everything is so temporary. He doesn't have God. He doesn't have faith. But he has a lot of stuff. Are you okay with that? Would you be okay with that? If you could, if you could choose the two lives... No God, but lots of stuff, health and wealth, but no God, or choose God and have a difficult life, a hard life. I mean, as we look through the scriptures over and over and over again, it's it's one or the other. Now, in North America, we like to think we can have both, right? I'm going to, I want a lot of stuff in this world. God, like, bless me, bless me, bless me. Give me everything here now. And then, at the end of all, let's go to eternity in heaven. That's amazing too, right? Like we, we tend to have one foot in and one foot out. But, but we're not to live that way. I mean, Genesis 37.1, we read about Jacob. What, what was he doing? Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. His, his, he never did have a land of his own. Esau gets a land. He doesn't have one. He's living in somebody else's kingdom. He's living in somebody else's land for his entire life. Just like what? Just like you and I. If you are in the Lord Jesus Christ today, this isn't home. This is a heads up. Like this isn't our permanent dwelling. We're just tenting. Our whole life is tenting. And we ought, to, we ought to live like that, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but every time I've ever had to move, I'm just like, ugh. Where'd all this stuff come from, right? Right? Can you relate? <laughs> Amen. It's Christmas time. We're going to get more of it, right? And, 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 and guess what the message is to you? Get it now. Why would you not have the latest technology? I mean, how, how can you live your life without it? What, what, how, you need new clothes. Your old clothes are out of style. I mean, I love the commercials with the car and the bow on it. Like, I mean, that's a whole different set of people, right? <laughs> right? <clears throat> right? But yeah, you need that Lexus. I mean, it's Merry Christmas, right? We need it now. So the message to you now is like, live for this world. Live now. Like, live like this is it. But it's not it for you and I. 1 Peter 2.11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, stop living for the things of this world. 
Stop living for your passions here and now and instead live as sojourners and exiles. As if this was not your home and put all your effort in the home to come. As Jesus reminded us over and over and over again, store up your treasures where? Not here, but in the life to come. This is what are the difference should be between you and the world. And I think it's I think it's such a huge temptation for us in Canada, if we're being honest. To say, well, we're not buying Lexuses. I mean, we only put 10 grand on the card this year. It's not a big deal. What are we living for? Which kingdom are we living for? Something to be thinking about. Second thing I want us to see, in contrast to the world, God calls his people to be strategically advancing God's kingdom. We need to be strategically advancing God's kingdom. If we are of another kingdom, and, and we are, we've already seen that, then we, then we want to see that kingdom come, that will being done here on this earth as in, as in heaven. But our strategy is different than the world strategy. Let's look at the world strategy first. We see that Esau had moved out of Canaan to this place called Seir. And now we're told what happened in Seir. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. And Moses tells us about the two, uh, two of Esau's sons and their children in verses 10 through 14. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Canez. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeash, Jalem, and Korah. Okay, some great names. Incidentally, all of these names, like at the beginning, like say 81 names here in total, there's a couple names at the beginning that have something to do with God, and all the rest of the names have nothing to do with God. Again, reminding us of the trajectory of Esau's life. It was like named after stuff on this world instead. In verses 15 to 19, we see that these sons all become chiefs or great men in Edom. Sixteen chiefs are going to be mentioned. Many scholars mention that, that typically each of these chiefs would have been over a thousand people. So we're, we're getting some insight into how powerful Esau becomes and his family. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs. Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of rule in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Alabama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeash, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Olabama, the daughter of Anna, 
Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Right? So they get into the land, and there's a political structure that they have. These one, uh, one guy over a thousand, they're chiefs of clans. And then in verses 20 to 30, we're told about the people who remained in Seir and what Esau and his family had done to them. Hughes says this, Esau had, de- had displaced the native people and had married into the leading family. These are the ones that they're marrying into. The picture here is one of a violent invasion by Esau's clan, followed by the absorption of the native populace into the descendants of Esau. Thus, mutual absorption and assimilation moved into high gear. In other words, they're coming in, they're taking over this land. It wasn't just like they're like, well, we'll just take this little spot over here. Seer, you kind of, you guys good? We're just going to hang out here. No, they come in and they conquer this land. That's what they're doing. And there's this family that remains that they marry into. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobel, Zibian, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the sons of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemem, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobel, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, <laughs> and Anna. He, and he is the son of, he is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness. Did you guys remember that? I didn't know that until now. As he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. Obviously, this has been passed on through the years, right? When Moses is writing this, like, oh, yeah, that, that one. That guy, that was the guy who, who found the hot springs, okay, as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, and Alabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Ishban, Ithran, and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zar, Zar, Zavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobel, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. Right? Like, these are the people that they took over. What, what the idea here is like, listen, look, at, look how powerful Esau was. These are the group that they took over. In case you're kind of like, well, where are you getting all this? How do we know that they actually went in there and, and, and took over, like based on these, this genealogy? Well, Deuteronomy 2.12 helps us. Deuteronomy 2.12 says, The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of, the, of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So verses 9 through 19, we see the conquerors, and 20 through, 20, uh, sorry, 20 through 30, we're seeing those who have been conquered. And again, we're seeing just how powerful they were. And you might recall back when Jacob came back to Canaan, that, that Esau had come from Seir, and he had this army of 400 with him. Remember that? It, it, it likely because they had already been doing battle in Seir before. And so these guys just kind of happen to be along with him because they're already in battle. 
And that helps explain why there's this 400 that went with him in the first place. So this reminds us of what? God said in Genesis 25, 23, hey, Rebecca, you know what's going on? You have two nations within your womb. Esau was blessed of God and received the nation, which is a reminder for the people of God. If God so blesses those who do not follow him, how much more so does he bless those who follow him in the promise? Not just in this life, but for all of eternity. May that encourage our faith. Another tactic that Esau used, not just coming in and attacking them, but, but then they did this intermarriage thing. So they just assimilate the whole culture into their culture. One last note on Esau's descendants before we think about God's call to his people. As I mentioned before, out of all these names, they're all godless names. They're all godless names. In the beginning, you're kind of like, well, does, is Esau, I mean, his response of, in being forgiving, like, is he still kind of holding on to some kind of godliness? And, and there's maybe, maybe you know, some, some scholars even are like, well, maybe he might have. But what we can say for sure is that with every descendant, with every generation, they're moving further and further away from God. And we're going to see that in our last section. They're, they're moved away from God. There, there's, there's this kind of thinking amongst uh, people who are not saved. They're kind of like, I'm just kind of neutral. I, like, I believe that there's a God, for sure. I mean, there's so much evidence. How could I not think that there's a God? But, but, but I'm not going to choose one. And, and, you know, when I pray, I, I know that someone's listening to me. I'm just kind of neutral. But... What inevitably happens to the godless person is they move from away from this kind of neutra- neutrality and towards hostility towards God's people and towards God himself. And we're going to see that in this next section in just a moment. But what has God called his people to do? We are called to advance his kingdom. In Jacob's case, he was said, hey, stay in Canaan. Canaanites own the land. You just are going to stay there now. But live peaceably. This is why he's so upset when when the boys decide to take out the whole village, right? He's like, this is not going to go well for us. We need to be a peaceable people. That's what his calling was. Now, 2,000 years past Christ, what is your calling? Like, maybe we should take up arms, right? Like that... Like, let's take on, let's bring, let's advance God's kingdom by, you know, like, like back in the crusade days. Anybody look back in that and think, hmm, that wasn't from God. Anybody think that? I mean, the church thought it was, right? Look what we're doing. We're taking, we're taking ground for God. But what is our mission? Is to go into all the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that Christ had given them. That's our job. That's our goal. That's how God's kingdom is advanced right now. We had three testimonies, which represents three new people in the kingdom of God. That's how his kingdom is advanced. One soul at a time as the gospel goes out. That's the plan. 
Until when? Until Jesus returns. He says, I'm with you and I'm going to build my church. And that's how I'm building my kingdom on this earth right now. So when we say your kingdom come, your will being done, we're saying, God, would you save these people? Would you have compassion on them? That's what we're called to do as the church. But as we look back over the last 2,000 years, we can get easily distracted, can't we? I mean, a real popular thing over the last, you know, several decades is like, we need, we need like social stuff. We got to feed everybody, right? That's what God calls us to do as the church. And, and we kind of we, we put the gospel over here and the soup kitchen becomes the thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? And we, we miss the mission. Listen, as long as you stay on mission with the gospel, for sure, have a soup kitchen. But if all you're doing is feeding people, you're just making them less hungry and still going to hell. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And you're not advancing God's kingdom in any way. You're just making it a nicer place here temporarily before it's burned up. For you and I, the mission is the gospel. What about this? What about the, the idea of just, this is, our, this is our holy huddle. You ever been a part of a church like this? How dare that person come to our church? I don't even think they're saved. Have you been in churches like this? I've been in churches like this. Like we just, we have our little, we, we have nice fellowship here. And we talk and we, you know, we encourage one another and there's that dark world out there and we're just going to protect ourselves in here. And how's that being on mission? Like those people are the ones we're called out to go out and save and, and, and proclaim the gospel to. That's who, that's what the mission is, not to have a holy huddle. And now the third one that, that, that just, is going to come to mind as I've been thinking about this this week is the, is the, hey, we, we, need to, we need to take back the governments, right? And, and there's a lot of churches right now over the, like the COVID thing. I mean, that didn't stir anybody up, okay? Obviously it did. But now we've got this thinking in many churches, like this is how we do it. We, we, we start getting, we start Christianizing the government again, right? We, gotta, we, gotta, we, gotta get, we have Christians taking over government. Now, listen. I don't want to live in communist China. Do you guys want to live in communist China? Like it's it, politically, we have some democracy. We can, we can have influence. Like I'm okay with not having people who are anti-God, anti-church in our government and, and instead having some people who would believe that this book is real. Like that's, that's great, but that's not the mission of the church. Do you see what I'm saying here? Like if God calls you to, to have influence in government, praise the Lord. When you think about guys like William Wilberforce and, and the good things that he did through government, praise the Lord. For any, like saying like slavery is not a good idea. That, that was awesome that he, he, he led and, and did a, it had a great impact that way. However, we're called as the church to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples. Because again, we can have a comfortable place to live in but that whole country's going to hell if we don't proclaim the gospel. So we advance the kingdom much differently than the world advances the kingdom. Do you see the contrast? So in this Christmas season, as you go 
hang out with some relatives maybe you're not totally excited about. Let's be this. Let's be salt and light for the Lord's sake. Let us be bold. Let us be compassionate. Let us be loving. Let us be patient. And let us live lives that are set apart. So they're asking us, why do you still have hope? What is it about you? And then you can say, well, it's about Jesus. It has nothing to do with me. Can I tell you about him? So that's how the kingdom is advanced in this world. And then lastly, we need to be patiently awaiting the coming kingdom. It's, it's fascinating when you look at the, the, the Bible as a whole, God continues like, wait, just wait. I mean, I mean, think about Jacob versus Esau. Esau gets the land now. He, he, he has kings now we're going to read about in just a moment. Like, like he has a kingdom now. Jacob, what's his story? He hangs out in Canaan until unexpectedly the whole family is moved off to Egypt. And then they spend 400 years, 400, did you catch that? 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And then they got 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then they get the land. Like, I think part of the thing is here, God's saying, my ways are different than the world's ways. And then if you read through Old Testament history, you see that, that they have the land for a while, but they keep rebelling against God. He's like, hey, I'm... Here's the deal. You walk in obedience, you have the land. You don't walk in obedience, the land is no longer yours. That's how this covenant works. And they walk in disobedience, and then they're taken out. And then they're like, we need a Messiah. And they long for the Messiah. And they what? Wait. They wait. For hundreds of years, they wait. This is what we're doing with Advent, right? We're, we're, we're being reminded of the waiting. Would the Messiah come? Would the King of Kings come? But the world, they don't want the King of Kings. Esau didn't want the King of Kings. We're going to have our own kings. This is what we see in verses 31 to the end of the chapter. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Note, right? Long before they ever had a king. These guys had a king. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Dinghabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah, of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Hushim, of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Hushim died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Abath. Hadad died, and Samla of Mascara reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Balhanan, the son of Akbar, reigned in his place. Balhanan, the son of Akbar, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Paul. His wife's name was Mahadabal, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mazabab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Alabama, 
Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mizbar, Magdal, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. And so they have this land. This land is, is, is right next to Israel, and so it remains in the picture throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They're, they're just to the east of the Jordan on their border. They kind of reach down to the south. It was a land about 20 to 30 miles wide and about 100 miles long. And in numbers, we see Israel's like, hey, can we, I don't know if you guys know this, but we've been in Egypt for like over 400 years while you guys were prospering over here. We're just wondering, can we just kind of scoot through here, uh, scoot through your land uh, on our way to the promised land here? And, and we're not going to eat anything. We're not, you know, anything that we take, we're going to repay. Would that be okay as, as a brother? They even address them as a brother in Numbers 20. And they're like, no, you cannot. You cannot come through, and they come out with this mighty army and, and, and is threatening to say, hey, don't you dare. And so they got to go around. We, we see Esau continually, Edom, continually anti-Israel, anti-God. When, when uh, David finally comes into power, it's kind of the height of Israel, they battle, they have a battle against Edom, and that's in 2 Samuel 8. And they take out them and they reign over Edom until the end of Solomon. But after that, it flips again. And Edom is now free, a free agent to be against Israel. And they are. They are for their enemies. They're not for them. And God warns in the book of Obadiah, he warns Edom. Like, listen, if you guys don't repent, this is what's going to happen to you. He warns them about their pride. What was their pride? We're impenetrable. Nobody can come and get us. Do you know what their capital city was? Petra. Petra. Modern day Petra. That's where they were. Like nobody could come in here. We're, we're like, we're, we're, we're powerful. So God is this against them. But he also has this against them, that they're against their brother Israel. And so he says judgment will come. Now, what's fascinating, and you're like, sometimes it's like, you're just, it's just God is just amazing. Because when I was not encouraged when I read this text on, Gen, on, on Monday, okay? But this, this, as we look at the trajectory of history, this place becomes a, a name that I'm not going to be able to pronounce. It's Idomia, if, if I'm saying it correctly. It becomes the name around 300 B.C. And... and the last known descendant of Esau is who? Anybody know? Herod the Great. Herod the Great. He's from Idumea. And he is just like his descendant, his, those who have gone before him, sorry. He's a man of pride, and he will, and he's a man of pride fleshly desires, and he wants what he wants, and he wants it now. If he's still threatened, he, you're going to die. That's just how it works with him. doesn't matter if you're related to him or not. He would kill you, and he did. And so now he hears about this guy who's supposedly the king of kings, that he's coming, that he's been born. That he hears this from these guys from the east. They've come to find out who is this, this king who has been born in Bethlehem. And they say, hey, let's... Hey, could you guys tell me about where he's at once you find him? 
And they're warned in a dream and they leave. And so instead what happens is Herod in his rage, he kills all the babies in that vicinity two years and younger. He doesn't want a king reigning over him. He wants to reign. Isn't that the picture of the world? Like, I don't, we don't need the king of kings. We don't need the Lord of lords. Uh, we don't, we're pretty sure he doesn't even exist, which they know, Romans 1, they know he does exist. And you read the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns, they're not going to be like, oh, no, we didn't know. They're just, again, shaking their fists at him. This is the picture of the world against God. They don't want a king coming. But what? What's the contrast to that? We wait. We wait. As the people of God, we cannot wait for him to come. We anticipate his coming. For with his coming came love and peace and joy and hope. This is what he did in his first coming. They were like, he's going to come and he's going to destroy our enemies. And guess what? He did. Your enemy, your greatest enemy, sin, he destroyed The wrath of God he took upon himself. Satan he defeated at the cross. This is why he came. And all who put their hope and trust in him would never need to perish, but have everlasting life in him. But now we wait again. We've been waiting for 2,000 years. But he's coming. He's coming soon. Are you waiting? Are you anticipating? Are you hoping? Are you living for the kingdom to come? Are you, are you longing for the King of kings and Lord of lords to come and reign over this earth? Because one day soon, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every promise that he gives comes to fruition. The last we ever hear about Edom, 68 A.D., like, so isolated is this place. It wasn't, like, the, as far as the Westerners go, we didn't even know anything about that land. That's, a, like, not till 1800, there's this Swiss explorer that he finds Petra. I mean, it's a fulfillment of what the scripture said in Ezekiel, chapter 30, 35, verses 7 and 9. I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste and cut off from it all who come and go. I will make you desolate forever. Your tongues will not be inhabited. For her part, Israel is again in the land of promise. Listen, Israel has a future. Esau has no future. And God fulfilled that over 2000, almost 2,000 years ago now. May that be a warning to all who are against God here today. I pray that every one of you said, I know, he, I know he, who he is. I, I, I know he is my savior. I was a sinner, just as we've heard the testimony this morning. I was a sinner in need of a savior, but he came. He took my wrath that was due me upon himself. And now I live for him. I'm alive in him and I will live for eternity with him and for him. And so now I don't live for this kingdom. I live for that kingdom. And I can't wait for him to return. I pray that's everyone's testimony here today for his glory, for his honor. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for this time together this morning. God, we've been warned by the life of Esau 
that you can have a kingdom, you can have all the things of this world, but it will come to an end. God, may we be a people of faith, a people who are patiently awaiting your return. God, may we have one eye on the sky as we anticipate your return, as we live out life on this earth. God, this is not our home. God, remind us of that. Help us. God, if, if we have a divided heart, even this morning, God, would you show us that? Lord, would you help us to be wholeheartedly committed to you, to live a life not for this world, but for your kingdom's sake? Lord, help us to seek you first, your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that anything that we need, Lord, you'll add it to our account. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your word today. Lord, have your way in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit us online at redemption.ca. 